Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Carrie Snyder lives in Waterloo, Ontario, and is the author of the Juliet Stories, which was a finalist for Canada's 2012 Governor General's Award for Fiction. Her debut novel, Girl Runner, will be published in Canada by House of Anansi on September 6th, and next year it'll be published in the United States via HarperCollins and in the United Kingdom via Two Roads. Snyder is also a dedicated recreational athlete. She's a runner. She's also the mother of four children and the author of the popular literary blog, Obscure Canlit Mama. Now, Carrie and I spoke ahead of her appearance at the Eden Mills Writers Festival on Sunday, September 14th. I went to her beautiful home in Waterloo, Waterloo Ontario. Lovely, lovely place. And we just had a chat. We had a chat about her book, her life, and lots of other stuff. So this is it. This is me and Carrie Snyder having a conversation about Girl Runner and beyond. The Eden Mills Writers' Festival presents Taste and Transmission, an evening of music and literature at Guelph's E-Bar on Thursday, September 11th. This event features rare full-band performances by local luminary Scott Merritt and Toronto's gifted Sandro Perry, plus stimulating readings and discussion by internationally renowned authors and music writers Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels. Tickets to this all-ages licensed event are available now at the Bookshelf, located beneath the E-Bar at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph and at ticketbreak.com. Visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca for more information about taste and transmission on September 11th. Despite its best efforts, the E-Bar is not a fully accessible physical space. Dragonfly, Dragonfly I want to start by telling you that I think your home is very beautiful. Thank you. You have a lovely home here. I'm envious because I've been looking for a house just like this one <laughs> in Guelph, but it's harder yeah. to find. Uh, I mean, this. You, how long were you looking for this place in Waterloo? Well, actually, we, we thought of moving to Kitchener first. So we came from Guelph here and 11 years ago is when we bought. And we looked in a different neighborhood in Kitchener. And then my mom was 
happened to drive by this house and it was up for sale privately. Mm. So we hadn't seen it when we were, of course, we'd scouted for months and our real estate agent knew about it, but hadn't told us because it was a private sale. Oh, and I guess he wouldn't right, have gained very much from it. So my mom drove by, took down the number, we called and we literally came, saw the place. Like, honestly, it was one of those where you walk in and you're like, this is the house we've been waiting for. <laughs> okay, how do we get it? <laughs> you know, how do we get the best deal that we could afford? And and the couple was super nice. And they had they were only the second owners of the house. Really? You can believe it. It was built in 1904. Wow. And they had bought it when it was in extreme disrepair. So um, a very elderly man who was the last of the family had lived in it and had sort of turned into a hermit. Mm. And so he was living, I think, in the living room with a bunch of stores supplied, su- supplies up the stairs and stuff. And then the rest of the house was just basically abandoned. Wow. So when he was moved out or, or died and had to s- the house had to be sold, this couple walked through and they couldn't, they didn't have a lot of money, but they knew they could get a real deal on the house if they were willing to put in just tons of work right so that's what they did wow yeah and then we were the next to buy it wow so how long did they live here they had lived here for not quite a decade actually i would say about eight years oh that's it yeah oh wow and then yeah yeah okay i actually remember this house because i was a student at u of w and i lived in the neighborhood it's also a bit of a student neighborhood yeah yeah and I, I could sort of dredge up from my memory walking past it but it was a house that you wouldn't notice or you would think almost looked haunted. So that was when the man lived there. His, these huge bushes had overtaken the front of the house and, you know, the porch was falling down and it was just in complete disrepair, kind of a ghost house. <laughs> so you moved into a ghost house. We did. Eventually. Yes. Now, are you from this area? Uh, kind of, yes. Uh, so I have Mennonite ancestors on my dad's side who go way back to this area. Okay. Um, I was born in Hamilton and then we moved around a fair bit. So my mom is actually American from Ohio. And my dad's family was a missionary family. So he also moved around a lot. Um, I was raised, so born in Hamilton. We went to Germany from while well, my dad was um, working on his doctorate. Oh, okay. We lived briefly in Kitchener. And then he got a job in Ohio at a Mennonite institution. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I spent some time in Ohio and then um, they moved us to Nicaragua. So they were peace activists, which is similar to the story I tell in the Juliet stories, my previous book. And then we we moved to the Waterloo area when I was 10. So I have have grown up here from the time (laughs) I was 10. Um, Although we also spent some time out in the country near air ontario oh wow that's sort of yeah. near where i live I, yeah I, yeah I grew up in cambridge so that's pretty close yeah huh so that's a lot of do you have sense memories of all those places like the oh you, yeah. yeah yeah you remember every yeah every i once did this exercise where i went back in time birthday by birthday and tried to remember exactly where i was oh, at wow. each birthday and i could go pretty far back interesting yeah now the book that you've written, Girl Runner, has some. We've kind of touched upon a few things that I think are relevant to the book: a, a long family history, uh, property that That's has true. like a, a long and, and strange history. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired 
this particular book because you've moved from short story writing to a full yep. length book and as I say it's very complex temporarily and it's very intricate and a lot of characters can you talk a little bit about what inspired it well when I finished the Juliet stories it took me a little while to figure out what I was going to write what I wanted to write about next um, so it actually started with the idea of writing about running so that's where the kernel of the idea came from and then I looked around through history to try to figure out where to place the story. Mm. Um, in terms of getting, wanting to write a novel versus stories, um, I had a peculiar thing happen that when people read the Juliet stories, a lot of people would tell me, it's not stories, it's a novel. That the experience of reading it had felt like a novel. And I think that gave me the confidence, because it, it's a chronological story. But it, to me, it was still very much stories. But that gave me the confidence to think I could structure a novel, <laughs> even if I were writing it almost in little pieces like stories. You're right, right. Um, so that's what gave me kind of the, the courage to jump in and do it. In terms of how it all got built, I mean, it's it, writing is just <laughs> such a slow, and it's a process of going forward and then like, going backward right like a lot like this book really it's true <laughs> the structure it's true. the structure of the book <laughs> that's is true it carries you forward but yeah. then you're also pulled down in time yeah and pulled back in time so i wrote about thirty thousand words of a novel and the character was aggie the same character who's who is girl runner and it was a story mostly of her youth and it kind of reached a point where I just hit a wall and I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I let it go for about six months. And I actually wasn't sure I would return to it. So by that point, I did have a sense that it would be set, you know, in the... Well, her her story almost follows the exact century, right? It's almost like a yeah, full yeah, century yeah. story. Yeah. So I, I had that setting and I knew the character, but just something wasn't working about it. And then six months onward... Um, I, there was something about the present day that just clicked and I also have to say I could hear Aggie old Aggie <laughs> really old Aggie right. her voice also had come to me so I had this double structure going um, with the present day Aggie and the past and the the two characters who come into the nursing home right at the beginning and sort of set off the whole forward momentum of the story I didn't know who they were and I couldn't I was writing them but I had no idea who they were and that can happen sometimes it's almost like you're you're writing a kind of fill in the blank later character this is Max and Kaylee that's right they're making they're the young they, right they, and there's there's intrigue within like, uh, Aggie is just like I'm be, I know something's happening here yeah I don't know who these people are but they're familiar somehow it's very yeah it's it's quite like, right away it's like where's this going exactly it's, 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 it gives it a sense of mystery right away yeah yeah so as soon as I figured out that they were siblings because I actually at first had them I thought that they were maybe a romantic couple I did too initially mm-hmm. when I first when they first come off the page I thought that too that's right yeah but then as soon as I knew they were siblings, somehow that there's almost always kind of a magic click moment where y I can identify, okay, that's the, that's the point when I knew where the book was going and I just needed to write it. And that was exactly what happened. And then I wrote, so 
the Juliet stories had come out. I was doing touring. It was the fall of 2012. And I kind of came back from the Vancouver Writers' Fest, and that sibling thing just clicked into my brain, and I started writing. Right. <laughs> and I just wrote through the months of, and into the winter until I had gotten a first draft done. Now, does the sibling... So the sibling thing you're referring to is Max and... Max and Kaylee. And Kaylee. But there's a whole lot of... As I said earlier, it's almost hard to follow. You have... Uh, what I understand, the smart family is that we meet is a merger of a couple of different families. That's there's right. Half-brothers and all this Did stuff. you get... I don't know which book you read. <laughs> um, but the 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 finished book has a family tree. Right. So it allows you to to see how the families are merged, basically. Yeah, my edition says coming soon. Yes. <laughs> I have an advanced reading copy. So it said there's a map, which would yep. be very helpful, too. I know. And then there's a family tree. But my, the point is, I, I was, within that sibling dynamic, there is a lot of, what I would describe, there are hints of sexual confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with the the families who are emerging, there's this character. I don't want to give too. This is always complicated for me talking to authors. I don't want to give too much away about a book. Yeah. But there's this character George, and he seems to fancy Aggie. Yeah. And they seem to fancy each other, but they're, they're they would be half siblings, like half half brother. Right. They're not really sibling. related. They are. They are related. Yes. But there's something going on there. Yeah. There's a spark. And then when you talk about Max and Kaylee at the beginning. Yeah, why does that space, <laughs> that's that's an intriguing space. Why does that interest you? That kind of confusion about relations. I don't know. I mean, the Max and Kaylee could just be, uh, I, I'm not sure, just two, two strangers showing up. Uh, maybe people would just assume that they're, yeah. they're, you know, a partnership rather than siblings. Well, they bicker in a way that they're could be either. They're very familiar, right? Right. They, could bicker, yeah. they bicker like a couple. They bicker like... Yeah. Brother and sister, it's interesting. That's yeah. an interesting dynamic that you're... And you come from a large family, right? I do come from a large family. Uh, uh, um, I'm the oldest of five. Five? Yep. And you're growing a large family, I see. I have four of my own. <laughs> We're all done. We're not going to completely duplicate the right. family that I grew up in. But but the smart yeah. and the smart family, as I say, like I, I, I figured it out, but there's yep. a lot of siblings. There's a lot of people to hang out with a lot of death like a lot of people yeah. are, are, are lost um as i say like I, i'm a, the dynamic between the siblings is interesting but there's also this complex family dynamic yes what draws you is that drawn from your own family um not my own personal family but i just i think families are just the source of so much potential conflict as well as potential support and you just don't know how things are going to go. Hmm. And I've seen it in families where like splits happen and kind of, you know, members of the family who are, could potentially be extremely close are instead completely estranged. And to me, that just is a, an area that I find really fascinating that hmm. someone that you grow up with could be someone that you're completely estranged from and your lives go in different directions. And I don't know, I just, I guess as a writer, I'm always looking for, um, area, well, conflict is a good thing to write about. It, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, emotion, like it, cause it's complicated and because there always are more than one side to a story. 
and you can really see that and I think that's what I was trying to to explore with Aggie and her relationships the different relationships with the different siblings because she has very different relationships yeah with with you know her her brother George and her younger sister um or I mean her older sister she's the youngest but but the sister that's closest to her I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> You're this is terrible. Uh, yeah. Well, let's see. There's there's Fanny, who yeah. goes away. Yeah. Uh, there's Edith. There's Cora. The Cora. Cora, the relationship Cora is very... I, I actually loved painting that relationship. It's a weird one. It I is. Find, I, I don't know that I liked Cora, or we're supposed to like Cora. Well, probably not. <laughs> there's something going on there, but I can't figure it out. It's not... Well, and you know what? I think it's that Aggie... And Aggie's the narrator... Aggie doesn't like Cora. Right. So in a sense, we might be swayed by her view, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's her perspective. It's her perspective. Yeah. It's her story. And she's the one who's getting to tell it. Right. So uh, as a reader, I'm always cautious when I'm reading a first-person narrative because you know that you might, you're, you're seeing through very specific eyes and they're coloring what you're seeing. I want to ask you about this estrangement and reconnection that's a huge part of the yes, book it and is. and and that familial bond how it might trump anything yeah you know strangers can be when you someone who's a stranger uh, you know you you might have this you, you might just automatically keep a distance but as soon as you maybe discover that you might have a closer connection it's like an instinctual thing that's what sort of comes across in the book and i'm curious as to why you wanted to explore that you mentioned earlier that just family dynamics uh, fascinate you is that all it is there's just this idea of a bond that you could have with anyone well, you might not even know I it i think friendship too is another area that that fascinates me and to be honest when i was writing this i really wanted to write um a positive female friendship yes and i of course perhaps didn't quite succeed in that. No, you I actually... I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> it becomes an adversarial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, you know, there's this... Someday I'm going to write that story <laughs> of positive female friendship. But... Do you find that a female relationship... I mean, obviously your <laughs> perspective is going to be uh, skewed, but do you... F I did get the impression that you were... This, this is a book trying to enhance... Um, womanhood on some level this idea of of concentrating on it's fictional but she's the f one of the first wait is she the first no she's not the first gold medal winning athlete is she Aggie? well it's a fictional character the f the first time that women were allowed to compete in track and That's field it. events Sorry. was ni the 1928 olympics right but you've created a character uh, yeah she's right. she's fictional right so there is the and, and you're talking and i want to get into running obviously in a little bit but so you're talking about the strength of women yeah. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned, there is this sense in society that women are often pitted against each other more than men maybe are. Yeah. You're getting at that too, right? I think so. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have personally very strong supportive female friendships. Mm -hmm. So I really, I, I meant to get at that more. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm saying I'm still I still want to write that book, um, but just the way that the story developed. Sometimes you're just as a writer you have to follow the story that seems to be developing, and and it was definitely more of an adversarial story. But I I think I did try to build into it. Um, for example, 
the manager, um, the Alexandrine the manager. Gig, yeah. Gibb, is is very close and very like a, a solid mentoring kind of friendship. I think at least that's what I was trying to do. Um, in terms of well, yeah, but within that, there's also sexual confusion. That's true. And that also gets played up a little. I, I don't know. Women athletes in particular, I think, you know, there's just like confusion about yeah. gender dynamics, sexual dynamics. You touch upon that. I know. That. It's, it, it is really complicated um, how women are viewed, women athletes. Even now, um, if you look at like Eugenie Bouchard, she's very often, it's noted in any article that's written about her is how you know, marketable she is. Right. That she's beautiful, that she has this blonde hair, she's tall. Well, she's also, you know, obviously very strong and very determined and very athletic and talented and all those things. But somehow that what trumps it all and what's going to make her lots of money (laughs) is the fact that she's also blonde and beautiful. Like Agonita, like like Aggie. Exactly. Right. And, And often the... I think it happens even now that there's this sort of pressure on female athletes to be to reassure everybody that they're feminine and beautiful and not just talented and strong and athletic. And and it does get into questions of sexuality. Um, and I to me that that's kind of upsetting because I think if if you're a talented male athlete you're just a talented male athlete and people admire you know that you can maybe you're gonna say that's not true because there's, well, there's some marketing involved too but like there's a there's a, a broader spectrum of what's acceptable for a male athlete to be considered a marketing promising marketing I um, suppose, marketable athlete i suppose people could point to someone and i don't know if there are many other examples like him but like david beckham obviously is a brand right yes and of course he's <laughs> he's an enormous brand. Yes, yeah, he's a huge brand, and 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 they've, you know, I think his soccer, like his soccer skills, have become very secondary to yes. him being like a good-looking guy, who's posing. But for then he see, I mean, athletes do run into the trouble of being. Um, how do you have a long career? Because, right. Because being an athlete is not like being a writer. Like you have a best before date. Your body is going to give out. You're not going to be as fast as strong when you hit, you know, you're going to age. So someone like David Beckham and probably his wife, and <laughs> <laughs> whoever is working with him, has created something that's bigger than David Beckham athlete. Right, right. And, and therefore has longevity. And in your research about this time period that Aggie is coming, coming of age, winning the gold, yep. becoming a, a, at least a temporary celebrity, we were just talking about how athletes have a shelf life. And yep. that when we talk about what happens external to their skill, that's also very temporary. It's fleeting. Yeah. And this Aggie discovers this. She gets thrust into this world of marketing, but it doesn't quite pan out for her. In your no. research, was that common? Were you seeing athletes marketed for those, like in, again, without giving too much away, it's clothing, it's fashion. Yeah. Um, was, was that something that occurred? Well, there, I, I'm, I actually think she probably wouldn't have been allowed to compete again at the Olympics as an amateur if she'd accepted money. Oh, okay. That was very much part of the uh, original Olympic ideal. 
Um, and there was a talented American athlete who, who accepted some money to endorse a car, I think, in the 1930s. And then she was not allowed to oh, compete wow. again. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really get into that side of it. Can you imagine that today? No. There's no way that would <laughs> no. happen. It's r- that's no. amazing. Wow. But they wanted amateur to be, you know, completely not paid in any way, not to be receiving any money benefit from their athletic abilities. The fine line between amateur and poor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's strange. Huh. Um, but part of uh, my research was I, I got old newspapers, like I got the uh, microfilm sent of the Toronto Daily Star. Right. And I read through. And a few of the articles are that, I, that are in the book are sort of loosely based on articles that I read. So there was uh, one athlete, one Canadian athlete, um, who was a high jumper who was in the 1928 Olympics, and she did win gold. And they called her, I don't think, the Lily of the Prairie or something. She, right. was, she was very beautiful, tall, and there were all this kind of, oh, she could make it in Hollywood kind of articles that came out right, which, immediately right. after she won. Now, she didn't go on to, to do any of that. Um, so I don't know if it was just sort of imagined and they were projecting possibilities onto these women. I didn't see any of them have any particular success marketing afterwards. Um, right. Yeah, that was that was invented. You know, it's funny that because I think the underlying sub- the subtext here is that athletes in particular they're they're known for their bodies, they're known for their physicality. Yeah. Um, so on some level, it's problematic that that's that ends up being exploited. Yeah. Um, by whatever some sort of marketing stream. On the other hand. Doesn't it make com- complete sense? Like you're known for your body, you're yeah. known for your your skill, your 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 innate talent. So for someone to be like, I want to take a photo of you and your body, yes, uh, to sell a car or whatever. I mean, doesn't that sort of? I'm I don't necessarily agree with where I'm going with this, but it <laughs> sort of makes sense. Sure. I mean, I think Aggie enjoys that. Like, I when I was writing her character. I tried to write someone who's very, she's very at one with her body. She's very at ease with, with her body and, and just comfortable. Huh. And so I think it made sense to her to just, I don't know. She was someone who liked to be photographed too, for example, rather than be interviewed. She didn't really want to have to talk. She was comfortable being. Well, there's a prim and properness to, uh, it could be, it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's an upbringing thing, if it's just of the time, she's of the time, Yeah. but there's a naivete within her. Yes. There's a, I thought a prudishness, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, is that, is that exemplary of her character or of just of people of the time? I think it would be more to do with the time mm. itself. Yeah. She's a farm girl. Yep. Large family. Um, very innocent, you know. Uh, Definitely, she's very naive. Right. Like, she's in some ways easily used by the people or easily manipulated by the people around her. Hmm. But it's partly because she's also very driven in a, and very single minded. Hmm. So it's almost like she doesn't have the capacity to look up and around and, and see the bigger picture. I think she, she's, she's very like that right. athlete heading for the finish line. Right. It's kind of what her character is like, too. So she ends up writing for the Toronto Daily Star with Miss Gibbs' assistance. Yep. Uh, ends up in the obit section. So now we have a character who's from a large family in 
this part of Ontario, right? Did yeah, Southern Ontario. I didn't really pick a specific place. I made a fictional. Large family, Southern Ontario, goes into journalism, into running. This is kind of you too, isn't it? <laughs> Th- these are you know aspe- what? I did not. Of your character. I guess that's true. Um, you worked for the National Post for a while. I did. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you're. I want to talk about this. You're. You are a marath- You run marathons, don't you? I have run a marathon. A marathon. Yeah. You're a runner. I am a runner, though. Okay. Yeah, and I am more of a long distance runner. I, str- I, you know, <laughs> I don't want to draw <laughs> too close a comparison, but you know, I, I feel like there's some connection here. I guess I, I don't feel like Aggie really is relates to me at all, though. I have to say. Okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think the things that I'm interested in are going to be the things that I write about. Mm-hmm. So, running is sort of a something I came to in the last five years or even oh, is less. That it? Okay. Yeah, I was never a runner. Um, I call myself a midlife runner. <laughs> I'm the same. I started running when we were about to have our first child. Yeah. And I just ran and I made a real commitment to run. I used to hate running. Yeah. I never understood running. Yeah. I never understood the running around. It seems sort of boring, right? You're like, why do you keep doing the same thing over and I over? I would always argue <laughs> that like, I w- it makes sense if I was going to run to some convenience store very, very far away, <laughs> get a magazine and come back. The whole just running in a circle with nothing to show for it, except that you ran, yeah. seemed pointless to me. <laughs> So I eventually snapped out of it and then I just been, you know, I have a six kilometer circuit that I do. It's not much. Yep. And I haven't done it in a while because I've been biking to work every day and I feel like, eh, I got to do it something. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, running, when it strikes you, correct, I don't know if you had this experience, you become a little obsessed with it. Oh yeah. I'd say I'm kind of obsessed with it. Did you run today? Yep. You did? I've run nine. I just ran nine kilometers. This wow. Morning. Yeah. And I'm training for this run for the toad, which is this trail run that's... Run for the toad? Is that what you said? Yes. And I don't know where the name comes from. They do have a little ceramic toad on the course that you see when you run by. It's this 25-kilometer trail run. So it's kind of grueling because it's, wow. it's you're either going up or you're going down. But it's super fun. I've done it before. So wow. I'm, I'm training for that now. So I, I did a 25-kilometer run on Sunday. Oh, my God. Uh, do you run every day? I don't quite run every day. I run when I can, basically. But I run a number of times a week. Every other day, maybe. Yeah, at least. Yeah. yeah. What got you into running in, in your uh, midlife? In my midlife running, I actually started with yoga. And somehow <laughs> yoga was a gateway drug. <laughs> you you got into one of the most relaxing things <laughs> exactly. you can do. Although it was hot yoga, oh. which is a little more on the extreme side. I I ended this yoga session feeling completely blissed out like I could do anything uh-huh. this was about eight months into the hot yoga and I thought I'm gonna do a triathlon triathlon so, triathlon that's actually where I started was I decided to do a triathlon of course in my if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Extreme blissful high, I thought. I am going to be an Olympic triathlete. <laughs> it didn't take me very long to go, wait, no, that's probably not going to happen. But maybe I could do a triathlon. Right. And so I, I started running and cycling and learned how to swim. I don't Key. know how to swim. You knew how to swim. You know how to swim now. I now know how to swim. You can do it. I'm not buoyant. I well. sink. <laughs> I tend to just sink. I can't float. That doesn't sound promising. No, I but don't. But I'm sure, I'm sure you could learn how to swim. I just think there's something about I don't know what it is. <laughs> I've tried it. I tried. They, they like just float. I can't do it. My legs don't stay up. I'm, huh. I'm not buoyant. It's just well, like, you know, you don't have to float. You can kick and then move your arms. I know how to. That, you're, just, you're describing swimming right now. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I will work on it. Okay, so you just learned to swim, though. That's yeah, I did. All I, of this is very inspiring to me. Yeah. So I was 35 when I learned how to swim. Wow. Okay. Yep. So there's hope for me. There's hope, and I learned how to swim well enough that within 10 months, I did the Guelph Lake Triathlon, the Olympic what? length. Really? Yep. So I did the 1500 meter swim in the lake, and when I came out of that swim, honestly, that was one of the best moments of my life. And I still had to do the bike ride and the running. But coming out of the lake, I was just like, I did it. So wait a minute. What, why did you? Why could you not swim for 35 years? So this is an interesting well, For me, I have a slight fear of the water, I yeah. think. Yeah. I, I think there are a couple of factors. So one, I don't think it was super important to my parents that we learned to become swimmers. So, and we moved so much. We never had swim lessons. I, I should say I was comfortable enough in the water. I could tread water. Mm. You know, and I, I wasn't, and I could doggy paddle. It was not like I was going to sink to the bottom. Like me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had some rudimentary swimming skills. But okay. as soon as I put my face in the water, which you have to do to do the crawl stroke, um, I would just panic, like yeah. complete panic. Yeah. And then I did remember, it sort of drew up this very old memory when I was, after I taught myself how to swim and I was practicing lane swimming. I would have these very dire thoughts as I was swimming back and forth in the lane. And I realized that I'd had a, a near drowning experience when I was about six or seven. Oh, wow. And I think that it was sort of tapping into that very old memory of, so every time my face would go in the water, it would just kind of shock me into rearing up and like, get me out of here. This kind of panicky feeling. So I had to overcome that. Huh. Yeah. So at least one drowning in your book. I know. I've noticed that it comes up that comes up as a sort of recurring theme or fear definitely yeah. i mean writing a book <laughs> you're going to be getting into your own subconscious anxieties and as well as your interests and everything is a little robbie 
Is it little Robbie who drowns? Uh, I believe so. Is that yes. his name? Yeah. You probably no. It isn't. It isn't. No, oh. it's another brother. Oh, okay. It's yeah. hard to keep track of all the. There are a lot of siblings. Siblings who don't make it. I know. Yeah. So okay. It's so time before antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> so you're. That's amazing. So you start running, and what is it about running? So the running was what stuck. Right. I found like, oh. and I do still swim, um, but mostly in the summertime because that's a fun time to swim. Um, I don't cycle because I have a fear of head injuries. Mm. So I, I loved cycling, but I was terrified every time I was on the bike. And then there were a few, I knew people who got hit by cars and mm. it just, I've been scared to get back on the bike. Oh, okay. But the running seems both safe and, and I love doing it. So I, that year that I did the triathlon, I also did the run for the toad for the first time. And then I felt so good after that, I signed up for the Hamilton Marathon and finished off the year with the marathon. Wow. Yeah. I haven't done a marathon since because you have to lay on a lot of mileage and it takes a lot of time. That's interesting. So all of this obviously fed into your, the inspiration yes, for this story. Exactly. You became so interested in running that you wanted to... I wanted to share the love of running somehow <laughs> through my writing. Um, and so I wanted to create a character. And I started to th when I started to think about her and do just a little bit of research on the history of running, I realized it's very recent history. People weren't really recreationally running until quite recently. Right. And I thought, what if, what if you were someone who just loved to run and that was what your body wanted to do and you found joy in running, but you were born into a time and into a body, female body, that, that wasn't really what you were supposed to do. Right. And so that's really sort of where the character came from and why I located her where I located her as well in and, that time and, period. And this sense of rediscovering, I mean, there's this, as I say, it's temporarily a little odd. You're, you flash, the structure is that each chapter basically begins with almost a very short vignette of the present day yep. uh, of, of Aggie kind of just processing what's going on as a 104 year old yes right and then it almost immediately the bulk of it the meat of it is is, is her sort of memoir almost of yep. her of her life and i'm curious about that structure i mean that just obviously came you, you you mentioned earlier that you were struggling and well i i was writing i attempted at one point to just write the story in the past right but somehow that left something out for me it just it left out that element of momentum that I think you get from the, the structure, um, the present day structure. Um, I don't know, when you're structuring a book, <laughs> you're just hoping it's gonna work out. That was like putting together pieces of a puzzle. So I wrote the, the present day section almost separately from the past. And I actually at one point had it as if it were its own short story uh -huh. all laid out together and then I knew where the separate places were going to be but then um, linking them up with the stories of from the past was like putting together a puzzle so I moved a lot of the material around um, so she doesn't shift back in time always to the same point that she was at right. the time before it sort of moves forward and back right yeah because it almost has to match up more appropriately with whatever she's dealing with in the present because that's the way that memory works. We track back. We're reminded by things. We go back to different points in our own yeah. story. Yeah. Um, and so that's the way that I structured it. But with the present day being very strongly 
chronologically moving forward throughout this day. What are you saying about... Well, there's midwifery in the in the book. Yep. There's there is abortion essentially. Yeah. What do you on some level this makes sense when you're dealing with a, a coming of age of a woman and 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 also a century where th- ideas and and notions about such things have evolved. Why incorporate that into the book necessarily? Like you've got all this stuff going on anyway. Yeah. And then suddenly there's this sort of sense of you know what uh, i'm i'm trying i'm struggling uh, like the biological capabilities of a woman yep. are are really explored in this book and i'm just curious why you wanted to do that um i suppose that's personal i mean i'm a woman i'm a mother of four kids i i think i've spent you know i spent a good 8 years staying home being a stay at home mom mm-hmm. with all that that means and and I, I, I felt while I was home with my kids, like I had a different understanding of time in a way and of what mattered. And I, I don't know. There of time? When, when you say you have a different yeah. understanding of time? Well, because the time when you're home alone with small children it's repetitive. Yes. So t- everything repeats and repeats and repeats. And the days feel very long. And yet when you look back on them, they vanish. Yeah. Because there's very little to that you can pull out that was different from day to day to day. Right. So it's almost like a different way of being in time. Whereas if you're working in a job or you're working for a career, you have these points of like, you know, that you're aiming for these goals that you're trying to meet and you sort of see it as a progression, maybe upwards or onwards and reaching heights and stuff like that. And, and it almost, I I don't know. It just feels like you live in time differently. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, I can relate to that even as a, uh, as a father. I mean, time is a strange force when you're raising a child. <laughs> it is. Um, and it's it vanishes and yet it's so long. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to cherish things more as I realize that. Uh, you know, and it's almost impossible to like, yeah. you, you almost resent what you have to keep doing. Yes. Over and over and over. Um, and I guess, I mean, when I think about women's lives over many centuries, women didn't have very many options um, because we were really, we were biologically, like Im- the biological imperative on us was is, is to sort of do what our bodies could do. And that was to reproduce. And we didn't really have any options as women. If you look at like the women who succeeded in doing anything other than childbearing, um, they didn't have children. <laughs> right. That is why they were free. That is why Jane Austen wrote her books. Right. If she had had children, I can guarantee you she would not have written those books. There right. is no possible way. Um, or you could maybe be very, very wealthy and have people looking after your children. Right. But by and large, that that is that's been women's lives. I mean, you you reach puberty, you. You bear children, you die from bearing children. Um, you know, childbearing is probably the leading cause of women's deaths over right. the centuries. Right. Um, 
and you lose a lot of your children and your whole life is based around being biologically female. And the options outside of that are extremely, were extremely limited. As someone who's very ambitious, um, I, I have a lot of interests outside of looking after my children. Um, creative, like I want to make, you know, I want to write, I want to create things. I want to be able to run. I, I, I guess I think of all these things that had I been born even just a century ago, definitely two centuries ago, I wouldn't have been able to do had I also had these children. And in a sense, Aggie kind of exemplifies a woman who has done a lot yes. with, her, with herself and with her body. Yeah. And, and she's pushed it in ways that are extraordinary. Yep. And I think that's the story you wanted to tell. You exactly. wanted to demonstrate that this is possible. Exactly. She's almost a superhero. She is kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My editor actually said, "So were you like a really fast runner when you were, when you were young?" I was like, "No. <laughs> I'm just imagining what that would be like. It I'm is. not drawing on actual experiences here." It's always fu- it's always funny. <laughs> I did it earlier, but it's always interesting when someone has an artistic bent and they create something people external to them just assume it's stemming yes. from something within them yeah. as opposed to something aspirational. She, I, I see Aggie as an aspirational character. I mean, the long life, yes. you know, living life to the fullest, literally, yeah. um, and accomplishing so much and, and, and going with the flow of the time um, to go from, uh, you know, a young farm girl to basically falling into running yeah. to becoming a professional woman. I mean, it's it's a pretty unique arc. Yep. And I think I assume that's what you were trying to. Yep. And there and you know, there were there, she is lo- like she's she's fictional, but there were women that did that. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So, it is possible. Yeah. And I think part of exploring her story is I'm always interested in the stories that don't really fit in with the norm. So. Yeah. You know the norms of the time. Like, what is it about these? unique people who are able to sort of step outside of the conventions of their time and do what they want to do because there are people like that all throughout history right she's a rebel as well she's anomalous uh in in her naivete in her trusting of people you know she's learning life lessons as a kid yeah but um she's also she's daring she's adventurous she kind of doesn't care right she doesn't i mean that's part of why she's naive is that she doesn't really care what others think right and that sets her free, but it also makes her vulnerable in a lot of ways, too. Right. Yeah, it's very fascinating. I, I really enjoyed the book. And as I say, it becomes this... Own, it, it, it Weirdly, there's ghosts in it. There's mis- <laughs> like It becomes very mysterious. And yeah, it's, uh, I was, it's really compelling. So I, I congratulate you on that. I, I want to ask you when you first started running, or rather writing, <laughs> running. Yeah. I wanna, we already took cover the running. When did you first start writing um, in this sense? Um, well, I always wanted to be a writer. So I first started writing not long after I learned how to read. Right. Um, but actually putting stories together that would have started in high school that I, I took it seriously and I imagined myself becoming a writer. And actually that I, I wrote quite a few, few letters to, to writers over like when I was a child. Like to whom? Oh, like the author of Encyclopedia Brown, for example. <laughs> Did you get responses? <laughs> the publisher wrote back on that one. Um, 
I'm trying to think who else. I definitely wrote to some people who were actually dead. <laughs> because I didn't know that they were, oh. you know what I mean? Like, I love their book, and it didn't occur to me that they were no longer living. You're like, dear Mr. Tolstoy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. No responses from no, those no people. No responses. But they were basically like, I want to be a writer. How can I be a writer? And I know I, and I now get letters. Yes, or now you get it. Exactly. And I would have to say the only path that I can recommend is, if you want to be a writer, read and write. And that's exactly what I did. So I just kept writing and and reading. I mean, I I was a voracious reader. I still read quite a lot. And I went to university and did English literature. I did a master's in English literature. All the time thinking, but what I really want to do is be writing books. Mm-hmm. Not just studying them or critiquing them or writing literary criticism. I knew I wanted to be the one writing the books. At some point that strikes you, right? You want to be the person doing the thing rather yeah. than reporting on the thing. Yeah. I struggle with that sometimes myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew it wasn't terribly practical and I was lucky enough that the job that I got was in the book section at the National Post, oh, so okay. out of university. And it gave me an inside view of the publishing industry because I was constantly talking to publicists and yep. we just had this yep. stream of books coming through which probably should have turned me off and made me terrified because there's just the volume of books that that are published. The volume of anything. It's terrifying, <laughs> right? You're just like, yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, it, it should have made me go, oh, that's crazy. How long were you at the, at the Post doing that? I was there for a year and a half. And this completely preceded you writing short stories? No, I had, I'd already been writing. Oh, okay. I definitely, I mean, I would say I was writing from the time I was seven not necessarily publishing. My first poems were published when I was 19 and I'd written them in high school. Right. And then I had a few more poems published in my early 20s. Like I had a story picked up in an anthology also in my early 20s. So I was, I was constantly sending stuff out, constantly getting rejection letters back. Nothing turned me off. Like nothing made me go, I'm not going to be able to do it. That's crushed my spirit. I can't go on. <laughs> Instead, I would think, oh, I just have to get better. Right. I just have to figure out how to do this better. And it helped being at the Post because it got me in touch with people in the industry, which allowed me to find an agent, which allowed me to sell my first manuscript. So you had networked. You had made connections. Exactly. Okay. So the connections were a big part of. Right. But, but all the way along, I think I was either consciously or unconsciously, but building in a very determined way the structure that would allow me to become a writer. Mm-hmm. And... So that's always the advice that I give is just keep writing like this. You have to be you have to almost not want to do anything else. You know what I mean? If you're going to succeed because you're going to go through very long stretches where you feel like you're not writing anything that's any good. Or maybe you know that you're not writing anything that's any good. And you still have to have this kind of hope and optimism that what you write will become good. And... I don't know. And and uh, almost like a an obsessive desire to do it too yeah. so that you can't turn it off. Like right. I really feel like there's not much else I could do. <laughs> this is your calling. This is it. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. It's worked out well for you thus far. It has. And I just I think the whole way along I'm very cautious about getting excited about anything <laughs> <laughs> because all the way along I think in terms of okay, this buys me x number of months or years of more writing. Because that's my actual goal. It's not finish a book, get a prize, do this, yeah. 
that's not that's not my goal and in that way i think i i'm similar to aggie that the the prize of winning a gold medal was not what she was not what what compelled her no and i feel very similarly i guess so if there was a personal connection it would be that and it's that i just want to be able to keep doing what i'm doing are you competitive oh yeah yeah you want to be the best at what you're doing no you know what i'm not competitive in terms of being the best because that's completely subjective especially when you're a writer maybe not when you're a runner (laughs) you're nominated for an award you want to win yeah, I do, <laughs> but I have, I, of course I do, yeah, and, but there's, I feel like there are good ways to tap into your competitiveness yeah. and really negative ways. Right. So, I'm very careful when I think about being competitive, I actually think about it in terms of myself. Oh, okay. Like, what are the challenges that I can set for myself? Some things are in my control, some things are not. Right. Getting on a prize list is not in my control. Right. All I can do is, is write as well as I can write. And if that means tearing the book apart and going over it a million times, which is the process that I go through, generally speaking, yeah, you know, that I, I almost don't tire of trying to make it better. Right. <laughs> that's good. You know, and that's... You're competing with yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I look at something, I think, okay, that's pretty good, but that could be better. How can I make that better? And then I'm willing to go and do the work to try and make it better. Um, but I think it can be really corrosive... I mean, you you're, you know the music industry. Yes, I do. And the, you know, can-lit world is small. Yes. <laughs> it's a small world. I think it's just useless to feel any kind of, just to allow yourself to feel any corrosive feelings of jealousy or those kind of competitive feelings because we're all in this together. It's so small. Everybody's struggling to survive and get by and make a living that, to my mind, it's just, it's better to be happy for other people's yeah. success, if you know what I mean, rather yeah. than think, oh, that should have been me. I hear you. I <laughs> you hear know? I can't help but draw comparisons to uh, Aggie and Glad and, and that whole dynamic uh, that you write about in Girl yes, Runner. Yes, uh, that's true. And just this sort of kind of passive, naive competition that's going on. Yes. Like, it's clearly a competition, but at least Aggie doesn't realize it. She doesn't seem to get it. Yeah. I don't think she does. Because yeah. she's, she lo- she because she's not in it for the same reasons that Glad is, right. I think. That ultimately, she would be running, whether she was running on a track in Amsterdam or she's running in the, in the fields behind her farm. Yeah. In, in a sense, it, the location and what she's achieving from it doesn't matter to her. That's kind of you, like with you in writing. To a degree, but I think I would temper that by saying that, Susie. Your dog is. Uh, she's wanting to come out. Oh, that's okay. I'm just going to leave her for now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I would temper that by saying that I, I want to make a living at doing it. I want, to, I want it to be sustainable for me. Yeah. We have four kids. We have this lovely house. Yeah. I want them to go to university. I want to be part of you know, supporting my family. So to that degree, I hope for success and, you know, commercial success because I guess I'm also kind of practical. Yes. Yeah. That's fair. And you've chosen a risky path. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of us have. Okay. I'm curious about what's coming up. Uh, When did you finish writing Girl Runner? Whoa, it's been fast. It's been fast. So As fast as Aggie. As fast as Aggie. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, it was completed like 
I would say not the first draft, but you know, the sort of mostly completed book that you read was done last summer around this time. Okay. And then it sold in the States and I worked with both my Canadian editor and my U S editor, um, on revising it. And that wasn't even completed until I was doing it over Christmas holidays last year. Is that weird going back and forth between two editors from two different countries? It was a little, it was a little bit strange. One of them's like, you spelled color wrong. (laughs) You know what's strange? (laughs) The U.S. version kept the Canadian spellings. Oh, nice. I know. That's good. I know. Good for us. Good for us. (laughs) Canadian spellings win. Yeah, so you went back and forth. I went back and forth. I basically finished working with the Canadian editor, and then the American editor had additional questions, but she really liked what the Canadian editor and I had done, but she just sort of pushed me on some different points. And if I had any questions, I would, I felt comfortable asking either one and it didn't feel like their, their visions were different for, um, for the book and Mm -hmm. they weren't different from what I had envisioned for the book either. With both of them, they very much said, here's what I think, but you know, you're the writer. If you have strong feelings about this, just stick with your own gut. Okay. Yeah. And what are the two publishers? So it's, um, House of Anansi here in Canada. And it's HarperCollins in the States. Okay, great. And that'll be in February. And then it's also coming out in the UK in March with a place called Two Roads. Nice. And they're part of Hachette. And then it's been sold into, I think, eight foreign languages as well. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, that all happened last last fall. Nice. You must be excited. So I get my r- the reason for asking this is, you know, with musicians, they'll finish a record... And by the time you've heard it as a listener, they're already they're five already or well six in songs <laughs> into something else. Are you hard at work at y- on your next project? Um, I had hoped to be further into something by this point, but I haven't been putting too much pressure on myself. So I finished the book sort of almost New Year's Eve, basically. Right. Okay. Um, Which isn't in the grand scheme of things. I'm just looking really at my watch. It's really only, what, <laughs> not quite nine months ago? Yeah. Eight, eight yeah, months. Eight probably months eight ago. months ago. So, realistically, I'm not going to have a new book anyway. No, no, no. I just wondered if you've already... But yes, my the wheels are turning, and I've, I'm doing some research. Um, but I haven't... It hasn't con- congealed into an actual story okay. yet. It's more s- things I'm thinking about. And meanwhile, of course, I have to write all the time. So, I'm, I'm just writing basically essays and nonfiction. Uh, uh, for... Publications um, or for yourself? for publication, mostly just for myself. Oh, yeah? Yep. Just have you read the... Have you, have you read My Struggle? Carl Ove. Oh, I thought you were talking about Hitler's Kano book. Sigard. Oh, I know, <laughs> no. I don't know why he named his book that, actually. It's kind of no, troubling. Uh, no, I haven't actually read it. No. Well, I, I just... It's a fascinating project, and it's not what I'm trying to do, but I have been writing... Um, so his, his book just is, like, extremely minute recording of his days and hours and memories yeah. and all of that. Familiar with it, I just haven't read it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's kind of what I've been doing. I've just been just as just an exercise. Recording. Yeah, exactly. I think it's um it's just kind of good practice. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to make the ordinary interesting. Well, I mean, you do that, I must say. I mean, everything I've read has been really spectacular. And, and so Girl Runner is out here in Canada on September sixth. September sixth. Wow, look at that. It's, it's That's coming really up not very far. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 you must be excited. And for the post, you wrote reviews, I presume? Did you write book reviews? Uh, I did. I was actually um, 
like I was assistant books editor and then I was a copy editor as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you did, but you wrote, a, I just wonder how if much lo- writing have I done? Well, I just wonder in terms of like putting something out into the world and receiving yeah. critical reception, you know, the shoes on the other foot. Yeah. I, that's all I was going for, but it doesn't sound like you did too much. Uh, I've done a bit of reviewing. I don't like it. No, no, no. I, I, I think Margaret Atwood said she'll only review if she likes the book and I kind of feel the same way. Right. I don't, because I know that I'm just one opinion and if I don't happen to get a book or not like it, I don't feel like everyone else should feel the same way. Are you someone who would read your reviews uh, of your uh, own work? I've specifically told my publicist, please send them to my husband oh. and he can tell me if I might want to read them. Okay. But I actually try really hard not to read. Yeah. I, you know what? I might glance over it once, but then I have to just let it go. Good or bad. Like really, I don't think... Like either way, it's kind of, it gets in the way of just being myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I imagine once you've written a book like Girl Runner, you've let it go. I yes, don't imagine yeah. you revisit it much. Well, you could tell I forgot the character's <laughs> name. <laughs> I'm going to be revisiting it very soon yes. to prep for the readings because I'll be doing some touring in touring, the fall yeah, and yeah, going yeah. to the festivals. And I'll be preparing readings. Okay. And hopefully remembering characters' names, et cetera. Yeah. But now, yeah, in terms of any online presence, where can people go to learn more about you? I I have a blog that I write. I write posts regularly. You do? And it's a it's a website, just carriesnyder.com. Okay. Yeah. It so used you to have there, a different name, didn't it? It's still Obscure Canlit Mama. <laughs> but it, yeah, which I still is what I call my blog. Yeah. Um, and that was, it was just being hosted on a different site. Okay, so okay. I've moved it over to a, a nicer looking website. <laughs> CarrieSnyder.com. CarrieSnyder.com. And you're on Twitter and stuff. And I'm on Twitter and et cetera. Well, this was fun. I, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me, but and I wish you the best of luck with this book and well, everything. Thanks for coming all the way <laughs> to Waterloo. It's a lovely home you have here. I'm glad I came. <laughs> thanks. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at vishcreative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.